Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education by Kate Colbert and Joe Salustio with contributions by Elvin Freitas is now available for pre-order on Amazon. Get your Kindle edition or your softbound book. It's going to be amazing. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to add up on the Ed Up Experience podcast, where we make education your business. This is Elvin Freitas, co-founder of the Ed Up Experience. And no, I do not have the magical uh, sound effect machine. Joe has that, unfortunately, so he couldn't make it today, so I will step in. But we have an awesome guest and an awesome uh, returning guest co-host, so I want to bring them in right away. So we have our guest co-host today is Joe Leinhart. He is the Senior Account Executive at Advanced 360 Education. Joe, how are you doing? Doing well, Alvin. Good to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we, we appreciate your support. Uh, Advanced 360 Education is a huge, awesome partner of ours, so uh, appreciate you. Do If you could just outline real quick a couple of things about Advanced 360 Education that maybe the, the uh, listeners are not aware of, that'd be awesome. Real quick, Joe. Absolutely. Definitely want don't want to take too much um, time from our guests. Uh, but you know, Advanced 360 Education is a national marketing company uh, really rooted in technology and innovation. Uh, we're part of Advanced Local, a large media company that owns you know, websites and, and media companies and newspapers all over the country. And so that gives us a lot of resources and advantages that help colleges and universities with all of their marketing needs uh, across the country and really across the world. So it's pretty cool to be able to reach out and help so many people. And here in just a, a few minutes, you know, I'll explain how I come from the higher ed space for 25 years. And so I'm um, excited about this interview today. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate that context. I'm sure our listeners do as well. All right. So without further ado, let's bring in our awesome guest. Again, I don't have the sound effects, but I'm going to try to use some of the sound effects and we're going to have some fun here. She is Dr. Laurie Shanderson. She is Chancellor of Methodist College. Laurie, how are you doing today? I am well. Thank you for having me. Oh, no, thank you so much for taking the time. We know you're so busy. You got a lot going on being the chancellor there at Methodist College. So let's get right into it. So we want to know, and I'm sure our listeners want to know, tell us all about Methodist College over there. Uh, how, what do you do and how do you do it? Well, I am the chancellor here at Methodist and Methodist is 120 years old, believe it or not. Wow. Um, founded initially as a nursing um, school only for a very long time. And in recent years, we branched out into other areas of uh, health-related uh, fields, health-related disciplines, but we're still mostly nursing. And we definitely contribute to the nursing um, community here in Peoria, Illinois. So we're a partnership, actually. We're a subsidiary of Methodist Hospital. Oh. And, you know, it's good to grow your own, so yeah. to speak. And we're excited to continue to be able to provide support for the hospital and the clinics and the various healthcare settings that are in our community. That's fantastic. Um, so I was looking at your LinkedIn account and I see that you've been the chancellor there for about a year and a half, is that correct? Yes, almost a year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So um, you, here's the thing that I, I've been listening, uh, uh, maybe you have to, around higher ed is that uh, there seems to be a revolving door with presidents in the presidency. Uh, presidents are now uh, retiring. They are also uh, not staying as long as usual in one place. So 
my question to you is, since you've been there a year and a half, talk to us about what is it that you love so much about being a president, right? What do you think is going to keep you there for, you know, because there are many presidents that are also working for decades at one particular institution. So what do you think is going to keep you there for decades, Laurie? What would keep me here is a continued strong relationship with my board, um, wow. with the community, and with the institution. I think the revolving door that you speak of is um, something that's a real phenomenon, but yeah. it's because there's not a good fit. And, you know, there are positions that pop up all the time. And unlike other positions where you can move around more fluidly, there has to be a position um, in a location where you want to be at, in a school that has the setting um, where you want to be at, you understand the nature of the problems and you feel that you're suitable to be able to address those problems. Uh, but most importantly, that you're a fit for the board and in who they desire in a leader. And sometimes, you know, you have buyer's remorse on both ends <laughs> and it so just familiar. doesn't lend to a good fit no, and it's not no. sustainable and it could be very difficult. I, for one, am extremely fortunate in that I have um, excellent board leadership. I work with other executives as a part of the hospital system um, to which the college is a part of um, extremely, extremely professional and competent leadership um, throughout and great support for the college and what we're trying to do here. Fantastic. Uh, go ahead, Joe. Yeah, I was looking at your LinkedIn as well, Dr. Shanderson. I was impressed with the fact that I had a mentor of mine years ago. By the way, I, st I started in this business in like 96, enrolling students and managed the enroll enrollment for over 20 years and ultimately became a campus president. And so a lot of the questions I ask you will be, you know, kind of from that, I guess, spectrum, if you will. But one of the things he told me a long time ago, he said, Joe, if you want to grow, you're going to have to move around. You're going to have to go. I noticed you've moved around the country a little bit for this industry, haven't you? Can you tell I us have. a little bit about that? Well, it's about fit. I am a native New Yorker, born and raised. You'll know when I ask for water. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah. from. laughs> but, um, you know, my roots are totally East Coast. Um, I have moved around because the opportunity to have more positions with greater responsibility um, you know, called for me to be able to do that. But it also gave me a great advantage to be able to work with different, different accrediting bodies, not only programmatic, but regional. Yeah. So I've worked with middle states, I've worked with SACS, I've worked with WASC, um, and now HLC. And it's a, it's a good, I think, um, a good foundation to have a good perspective to lead a college and or university. HLC is great to work with. I've worked with them over the years as well. And one of the things I found in my research was that you guys were granted accreditation for grad degrees in nursing for the next 10 years, I think. Tell me how that changes the school. Well, I'll tell you, we actually have a site visit on Monday and Tuesday. So things are pretty busy around here. Our oh. site visit will take place um, again next week on Monday and Tuesday. So we're preparing for that. Um, but I did get news yesterday that our regional accreditation, a programmatic accreditation for our graduate nursing program was approved for 10 years. So this yeah. is hot news off the press last night. Wow. So clearly uh, things here at Methodist College are going well, or we wouldn't have gotten 10 full years. And I'm really excited about that. It's amazing. And, and how do you think that changes the school over the next 10 years or so? What's your vision there? You know, my vision is for us to continue to grow in capacity relative to what we can offer the community. First yeah. and foremost, 
Um, we have great physical space. We have a beautiful facility and we have great support again from the hospital systems. And my goal is for us to continue to fill the needs, the healthcare needs of the community. So we do have um, some marginalized members of the community where we have um, populations that don't fully represent the profession. And, you know, I, for one, as a woman of color, would like someone of color um, to at least understand my health needs in a way that sometimes only they can when we talk about interpretations of health and wellness. And I think we need to have more individuals that represent the community involved in the care of the community. And for many reasons, we've not been successful in achieving that across the nation. But my goal here at Methodist College is for us to infuse our curriculum and our programs with more students of color um, giving them the opportunity to serve the community. Yeah, I just want to jump in real quick. I'll get it back to you. But so I'm going to zoom in a little bit, Laurie, about that. Um, you said women of color, and there are not many women of color uh, as presidents or chancellors of an institution. So tell us about, and I'm, I'm sure that uh, listeners are going to be very curious about how you got to where you are now. I mean, did you have mentors? I'm sure you didn't say, when you were in college, I want to be a chancellor of an institution of higher education. I'm sure that wasn't what you wanted to do. I mean, when did that happen? How did it all happen? Well, you know, it started off, um, I, I used to be what they called a candy striper back in the day. I'm dating myself here. <laughs> and I volunteered at Harlem Hospital in New York City. And unfortunately, my mother um, became ill and she was in the hospital for three days. And when I went to see her, it just I really couldn't take the, the care aspect of it, not the direct care aspect of it. So my dreams of becoming a nurse were shattered because I don't think I had the, the stomach for it, so to speak. It was just really hard to see her suffer and then ultimately die at 15. Wow. And I knew that I wanted to be in healthcare in some form of fashion, but I didn't know what that meant. So um, as an undergraduate student, I sought out internships that would give me different perspectives. So one was at a VA, one was at a a health insurance company, one was at another type of facility. And I realized that administration was where I really wanted to be. In my graduate programs, I got more involved in data and um, informatics, so to speak. Um, and I really enjoyed the programming aspect of it. And so I started having positions that were analytical work. I was a medical economics analyst. I did this type of work for a few years and I became a research analyst. Well, at the time I was working at a research institute that was, um, I had to travel for work and it wasn't near home. And one of my friends says, hey, come in and teach a course for me. And I started teaching as an adjunct and I started doing that. And then I was asked to do it full time and it just grew from, from there. But I always knew that I wanted to be in a role that had the opportunity to be impactful. And that meant that I saw a lot of things that I didn't necessarily agree with and how things could be better. And that means taking on more responsibility, of course, and lending your voice in a way um, that gives you the opportunity to have a greater impact. And so, you know, it was just a trajectory that I wanted to be on, um, not necessarily for the title, but for the opportunity to have an impact as much as I knew that I could. And along the way, I've met several mentors and some look like me, some did not. Some shared the same biological sex, some did not. Um, but surrounding myself by good, strong, intelligent people that have great integrity and, and strong moral compasses and amazing work ethics is where I think I landed um, where I did. Got it. Go ahead, Joe. That is fantastic. I could just sit and listen to you. So I think I'll do some more of that. Um, but I want to ask you really quick. I remember when I transitioned from 
being a VP of admissions and ops at a college to being the president of the school, albeit much smaller school than you're running right now. I just am curious from your vantage point, you were dean for a long time, I saw. Um, what was the difference for you from moving from that role into now being the chancellor? Well, I have to tell you, it was um, similar and different. It was, it was similar in the fact that I was a founding dean of a school of health sciences. So before I got there, health sciences did not exist at the institution where I was. So I had to build everything. I was a, I was a department of one. I was a school of one, school of health sciences. And I had to build that out. But I had a lot of experience in building new programs at the graduate and undergraduate level. So I knew that I could do that. In terms of that um, type of leadership, that individual type of leadership where I was a, a unit of one and had to develop... Um, kind of um, on my own, I knew that that autonomy would lend itself to my being in a chancellor slash president role. Um, but a lot of the work, I think in terms of the level of responsibility, I was used to it. Mm -hmm. And this is a little different in terms of having more of that. But I think um, my preparation has been uh, you know, pretty independent, uh, having to build from nothing, having to create where nothing had existed. And I think that lent itself for a good opportunity for me to be here at Methodist College. Yeah, it sounds like it was a nice transition for you. So nothing was a good transition for us going in and out of COVID. You know, we all had to learn something brand new. And I'm just curious now that we're looking back, I think we can say this now, looking back at kind of the worst of COVID, I'm wondering... How different are your students today? What has changed about the student body or maybe the classroom since we went through that? You know, I, I am not sure um, what has changed about the student body. When you look at students in the health professions, we train them to be resilient. We train them to work in dynamic environments where they have to change all the time. And a lot of the times that's predicated by health protocols anyway. So this really was... Um, theory and practice, I think, yeah. the, the whole COVID um, pandemic for our students. Um, in terms of teaching and the classroom applications, I think that was more of a challenge because we've had individuals that had taught face-to-face -face, and of course this discipline requires that you are in front of the students. And in many instances, we had to move to an online setting. And so having those that have been prepared you know, most of their academic careers to teach in front of students now move to a different platform. Um, that's the, the method of delivery is very different. So what you can do face-to-face -face is not easily translatable in an online setting. So you have to learn, um, you know, different practices that could get the outcomes in terms of student knowledge acquisition and, and content transmission and applied experiences in a way that you couldn't um, if you were not standing there face to face. So I think that was more of the challenge and making sure that our faculty had the training and that they were up to date on how to, you know, have the same rigor online as they felt they could have face to face. That was very important in, in having the integrity in that learning process for our faculty because they didn't want to feel like they were phoning it in. And there were so many aspects of the nursing curriculum and in the other program um, curricula that they really felt required hands-on and face-to-face -face interaction and engagement. Commencement.
The Beginning of a New Era in Higher Education by Kate Colbert and Joe Salustio with contributions by Elvin Freitas is now available for pre-order on Amazon. Get your Kindle edition or your softbound book. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, it's been so comp complex and, and complicated. And yeah, I think we're better for it. I think, I think like most things, these yeah. challenges strengthen us for the future, right? But I want to ask you about, you know, a much larger topic. It feels like I, I teach an online class for a university and in leadership. And, and I'm always thinking about this topic, about how fast things are changing, or that is that just my perception? So I guess I want to ask you, are things in higher ed really moving and changing right now like it feels like, or is that overblown? What do you think? You know, I think back in the day, saying dating myself again you know technology and healthcare were the things that changed the fastest all the time every time and we had to kind of bend with the wind as it you know blew towards technology and things being outdated and healthcare those never stayed um the same for long and we had to be flexible i think as it relates to higher ed now i would agree with your assessment that things are moving along quickly and i think that's a result of the just the overall um environment that we live in just as a community things are just much more fluid things change all the time um their demographic um shifts that are having an impact on higher ed there are also the value of an of an education and what that means and is it worth the investment there's so many different things that lend themselves to our needing to change as well and to address the needs of the workforce but then how do we market or or how do we demonstrate that going into helping professions and that earning a college degree and advanced um, education is still a good investment there, there's we, we you know we have this constant battle um this constant competition for younger people and other you know anybody who really thinks it's easier to be an influencer or to go into professions or to be able to make money in a way that is different from how we did it in the past. But unfortunately, some of the things that we do require that you have formal training. And we just wanna encourage younger people to embrace the training and to enjoy the process and then to come back and help their communities in ways um, where we really need them right now. Yeah, and if I could jump in real quick. It's interesting because I think I saw or heard something on a podcast that most eighth graders, as you mentioned, Laura, they, they actually aspire to be YouTubers or influencers. And so that's kind of a scary thought because that's extremely difficult. It's like, you know, one in a million that are able to do that. You're not everyone can be Mr. Beast. I don't know if you guys know Mr. Beast. He's like the number one YouTuber in the world now. He's absolutely unbelievable. Millions and millions of views. And millions of subscribers and now all these all these young kids they're watching him and saying that's what I want to do I want to do that <laughs> so when you talk about the value I mean that's that's exactly what you know higher ed is uh, is fighting against it's like how do we yeah. prove the value of higher education so so my question to you Laurie is are you having those conversations more often with staff faculty other presidents students I mean are they saying why should I even go to higher education and if they are you know, what are the some of the responses that uh, you're kind of telling them about? You know, I think for a while, and it's been leading up to this, it's been what degree can I get that's going to give me the biggest bang for my buck? Yeah. 
So we got away from, you know, pontificating on the grassy knoll to <laughs> moving towards um, what some even made it seem like um, vocational yeah. education yeah. in higher ed, right? It's do this and then you'll have this job and or you'll stack degrees for the purpose of career advancement, but not necessarily for an educational experience or, or knowledge acquisition. And I think those conversations continue to happen, but the population and their thought process on these things has changed so much that you really have to identify younger people that recognize and appreciate um, degrees and have them speak to other younger people. Oh, because I think cool. the rest of us sound like yeah. wah, 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 wah. <laughs> you know, go get a degree. I, like that one. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it resonates the same way. Um, mm -hmm. But again, there are these areas where we definitely need trained professionals that have earned degrees um, and some things that we know that have gone away a little bit, like um, I think they say brick mason and plumbing mm -hmm. and, you know, those areas lost a lot of people and are now um, gaining people back. And I think just because we've kind of priced ourselves out in many instances, yeah. the pandemic also showed many students you know, what they were paying for relative to the costs of keeping student centers open and sports teams and all of these other ancillary things that we do that are co-curricular. And when they couldn't access these things and they started to say, hey, what are we really paying for? You know, there are a lot of different conversations that are going on about the value. Um, but I think it's, it's incumbent upon us as leaders to make sure that the students know what it takes to have a community be successful and sustainable. You know, what does that look like and who do we need to be in the neighborhood in order to perpetuate life in our communities? And then what are your skills and how can you parlay that into a career um, that benefits your community, you know, either a local community or a national community? I think we need to have those conversations um, in real time. And to your point, everyone's not going to the NBA, everyone's not going to the NFL, everyone won't be a, a rapper, uh, everyone won't be an influencer. So where do you land and and how does that look ultimately? Yeah, and before I pass it to you, Joe, I just wanted to add that I absolutely love that insight that you said that it's the younger folks who have the credentials talking to the prospective students and let them know, and instead of us pontificating you know, this is why you should go to higher education. This is why you should go to college. And, and I think that is so smart. And that's why I think, you know, a lot of schools are using their current students, using their alumni and the whole, you know, enrollment process and marketing. So that's really great insight. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah, it, you know, one of the things that comes in my mind, the word that comes in my mind when we talk about the cost of college um, or whatever degree programs we're offering is value. Like, how much value are we offering? I was reading an article not too long ago, and I'm going to butcher this, but you'll get the gist of it. And what the guy was trying to say was, listen, if we're charging more, shouldn't we be giving more? And so then he did a study of classroom hours in the 1960s that were required at state schools compared to today. And it was some 50 hours more, you know, in the 60s compared to today. So in other words, it's kind of like saying the carton of ice cream keeps getting smaller, but the price gets bigger, right? And I'm wondering from uh, Methodist College, you know, in terms of value, how do you guys maximize to make sure you're going to continue to offer that high value for students? I think it's important. Well, you know, I, I think that's an interesting example. And while I can 
understand it at face value, I, I have to destroy it a little bit. Ooh, you know, we've, we've learned that we can do things more efficiently in many ways that don't require the same amount of, of effort. That's fair. Right? We, we've learned how to teach math in, in different ways. We learned um, science, you know, we used to have cadavers in many of our health related programs. And now we really know that we can use technology yeah. and we could actually do more than if we had a, a, a cadaver. If we have a cadaver, we have a dead body that's rotting in front of us. If we use technology and, and we have, um, we have a table and I can't uh, think of the name of it, but we have a table that has an image of um, of corpse and you can go in and see the veins and you can see what's happening and you can see That's flesh cool. tones and other types of colors and you can actually look at the walls of a vein and you, you know, technology has helped us learn things better mm -hmm. and it doesn't take the same amount of time in many instances. That's the benefit of technology. So it's not a necessary, um, you know, time versus value type of equation, because in so many ways, I mean, we used to have an oven and now we can warm stuff up in a microwave. You know, it doesn't change the value in every instance. Um, so I, I don't think that's as valid, but what are we doing in the classroom? What are the lessons? What case studies are we using? What applied assignments are we using that can generate analytical and critical thinking in a way that we haven't before? Um, how are we using all of the advances in higher ed to educate our students? It's very different than it was just because of the tools that we have available to us. So it's not going to be a one-to-one -one comparison. Alvin, this would be a time for a sound effect because that was fire. That was <laughs> Amazing. <I'll> do <laughs> wow. I don't, I don't know. know. Wow. Awesome. <laughs> I feel cheated. I know. <laughs> I love that. And, and I was happy for you to destroy that. You know, this is the problem with headline readers and, you know, <laughs> not, not going into deep thought on those questions. But uh, well, I have I to tell you, I've had to challenge my own uh, thoughts on these things. And I'll tell you with ebooks, I am, you know, an old textbook person and I have my highlighters and I underlined and I, you know, annotated and students now can use ebooks. I don't know how they make notes. I don't know how they go back to them. I don't know how they, I, I don't know how to do that, but I know it works for them. So just because I don't understand it, you know, I was raised in a whole different time um, when the educational process was very different than it is now. They have tablets, they have computers. You know, I had um, the Dewey Decimal System at the library. I had, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica one through 10. And, you know, it was just very different. And so um, we don't have to understand it, but I definitely think we have to respect it. Yes, ma'am. I'm old enough to remember dittos. Do you remember ditto machines? Yes, I do. Mimeographs and yeah. And they just, we went in there and we would turn the dot and do this for our teachers. Is Now we have copiers, right? So one of the things I do know a little bit about is um, retention of employees mm -hmm. and staff. And I'm very much a people first leader. Um, and I just feel called to do that. And I just wonder, um, there was an article that came out in the Chronicle, I think the Monday about the fact that admissions advisors across the country, a study showed that 50 plus percent of them are looking for jobs currently in a survey that they just conducted. And that one's near and dear to my heart because it just kind of hurts because you invest in these people for a year, two, three oh. years, whatever, and they leave you for whatever right. reason. 
I wonder what your thoughts are about retaining your people right now in education. Because for me, I know for you, I, from hearing your voice, it's like an advocation for me. It's, mm. I'm passionate, like it's a ministry to me. It's why I stayed in it for 25 years. Mm -hmm. How do we do a better job of retaining people in higher ed? I think we do a better job by identifying the individuals who are going to take these roles on in, in the first place. So I think that we have to create a career path because when you create a job, people will leave a job. Yeah. They're not necessarily going to leave their career without intention and focus and a pathway forward, but they will leave a job and they'll go do a job someplace else. But if we have you know, entry level admissions people, we want to create a pathway and say, hey, we want you to learn these things. We want you to master this skill set and move you into recruiting, move you into enrollment management, move you into other areas where they feel connected and committed to the work. Mm -hmm. But as long as we just have jobs, we're not going to be able to retain people because someone will pay them more and they'll go elsewhere. We have to build that passion in um, and we have to create a pathway for a career. I've always believed that too. And if it's just a dead end with no light at the end and, but I think you got to connect them to, for me, you got to connect them to those life changes. Right. And man, when I saw a student that I enrolled, walk across the stage, it was such a uplifting thing. I wasn't selling vacuum cleaners. I, yeah. I was changing <laughs> lives. You know what I mean? Yeah. It is. Yeah. Um, so Elvin, do you have a, a question, Elvin, or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if, you, if you're good to go, I'll wrap up with the last two. Is that okay, Joe? Sure. I, I wanted to ask her really quickly, though, if go I ahead. could. I thought you were kind of jumping in there. I, I was wondering what keeps you up at night, you know, uh, as, in terms of your job, you know, what, what's on your mind most of the time? You know, I think um, what keeps me up now is just the amount of work that I have to do. In terms of fit and doing the right thing, and I, I will sleep extremely well. Um, I, I don't feel like what I'm not doing is good for the college, um, missteps and all. I do feel pretty good about my intentions and my efforts towards a better day every day at the college. I think the amount of work and the, um, the quickness that which it, it comes to us and the need for us to change and all of the things that are going on in higher ed and, and trying to be in front of things and to plan and to implement and to prepare for accreditation. You know, we are just um, heavy with a lot of tests on our plates. Um, but in terms of doing the right thing and having any of those issues, well, I will tell you, I think the amount of students that have presented recently with a lot of anxiety is something that is really bothering me right. because much like the rest of us in society, uh, they have this, this steady diet of social media uh, being fed to them and they have to process information that sometimes they should not be there to consume. And we really can't do much about that. And I think it becomes overwhelming with the rigors of their studies and with the other challenges and the other competing um, challenges that they have in their lives and it, it can be overwhelming. And I think that is something I think that bothers me because I'm seeing that um, escalate more so than ever, but we're seeing that everywhere, but it's just harder for me to see it in the student population. Amen. I was really noticing a lot when I left the last club I was with, you know, even homelessness and, um, you know, struggles to just eat every day, you know, and 
people listening to this may not realize that that exists in colleges, but I can promise you I've seen it firsthand and had to create programs to help students. Well, to, to your point, uh, we discovered this issue just last month with food insecurity and housing insecurity. We were able to make a housing referral, but in terms of food, we've partnered with GLOW, Girls Light Our Way, and we've had three food banks and today we had another one um, where we bring food on to campus. And our campus is located in an area where you wouldn't think that there would be a need, but we have the students on this campus and we've been able to provide them with uh, baby food and non-perishables and a lot of groceries. And they've just been so grateful and so happy. And I am glad that we're able to provide them with this because they need it and they need the support right now. And ultimately we need them. So it's an investment in our community and an investment in our future. That's beautiful. Yeah, Elvin. That's oh, wonderful. This has been a really fantastic conversation. Thank you so much, Laurie and Joe. This is great. So let's finish this up and we're gonna ask uh, two questions that we ask everyone. Uh, so first question is, what did we miss that was not uh, talked about during this conversation about Methodist College that you might wanna talk about, Laurie? And second question is, what do you see as the future of higher education? Okay, uh, what did you miss about Methodist College? I think, you know, we're a smaller school here in central Illinois, and we have great faculty, and we have um, just great staff, and our goal is to just continue to provide the um, hospital systems in our local community with very skilled, proficient, culturally competent um, healthcare workers. And we don't have a lot of visibility and opportunity to say that with everything else that's going on in the world. Um, but to the point that I can share that with your audience, I'd like to share that. And um, second, in terms of higher ed, I think the question, what was the question again? I'm sorry. What do you see as the future of higher ed? The future of higher ed, I, I, think, um, I think we're gonna see more schools go away. Mm. Um, because I see a lot of corporations getting into higher ed space yeah. with micro-credentialing and different um, certificates and, and different ways to learn things that don't necessarily require um, a degree. And I think that the degrees are not going to be as necessary as they've been in the past to demonstrate that you um, have a certain skill set or a certain knowledge. So I, I think we might be a little ways off from that, but I definitely see how what we created in higher ed is definitely changing. You know, and I'll give you just a quick example. We had a lot of people that cared so much about tenure and about publishing and doing oh. these things, but those things aren't respected in the same way anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because we don't look at higher education or the educational process the same way anymore. So the benchmarks that we're setting um, to demonstrate that someone is successful, those things are changing. I, I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I, I see it changing. And I'm, I'm just glad that I'm on the side of it where we can continue to educate individuals that are going to have a direct impact on the community that we serve. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say that, Laurie, because uh, in the, on the podcast, we have been hearing what is uh, higher ed's new competitor? Because in the past, 
it was schools competing with schools. Now we're hearing the competitor is the corporations. Yeah. The competitor is the value of higher education. The competitor is YouTube. The competitor is influencers, social media. So it's been very interesting to see how the amount of competitors of higher ed are evolving and changing. And it's been really interesting to see. It will, we will continue to see. So uh, thank you so much for adding that value to our um, EdUp listeners. So I appreciate it. So I want to say first, thank you so much to my co-host, uh, Joe Linhart, Senior Account Executive at Advanced 360 Education. Thanks so much for coming. Now that's the sound effect. There we go. There we go. Live. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thank you, Joe. And of course, of course, our amazing guest today, Dr. Laurie Shanderson, Chancellor of Methodist College. Thank you so much for coming on, Laurie. How was your EdUp experience today? Oh, it was wonderful. I enjoyed um, speaking with you, gentlemen. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. Ladies and gentlemen, you just erupt. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education by Kate Colbert and Joe Salustio with contributions by Elvin Freitas is now available for pre-order on Amazon. Get your Kindle edition or your softbound book. It's going to be amazing.